0: All right, well good morning. My name is uh, Rick. I am one of the pastors here. Good to see you all this morning. A little different this morning. If you turn, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to the book of James. That seems weird. We're supposed to be in Galatians. I know, I know. Just trust me. Hey, um, in case you missed it, uh, last Friday, this past Friday, we had um, what we call Discover UPC. That is a time for uh, those of you who are new to the church. And when I say new, you have to understand, like, I've only been here a couple of months. So to me, I, I couldn't tell, like, are you how new are you? Uh, but it's, it's a time for those who are, who, who are new to the church, want to learn a little bit more about it, come kind of learn a little bit. We had a good time. But if, if you missed that for whatever reason... It's okay. Like You can still kind of join and, and figure out what's coming next. We have a class that's going to be coming up called Engage UPC that, that uh, is going to teach you a little more about what it means to be a part of this church. And, and, what, and if you want to like be a member of the church or even know what that means, then uh, we would love to have you in that and talk to you about it. Um, you can just contact the office. Megan will put you on a list, and we'll, we'll make sure that you get there and everything goes well. So if you, if you miss that, don't worry about it. Um, I also want to thank you for joining us on this Most Holy of Sundays. Um, I have one, no one's like, what does he mean? Well, this is what I mean. I'm not really sure if we had an evening service that um, anyone would be here. Uh, it is good uh, to be together. Uh, if, if We are in James chapter 2 this morning, and if you're wondering why, it's because we have been spending the last several weeks walking through this book or letter that an uh, early Christian leader by the name of Paul wrote to um, uh, churches in the region of southern Turkey. And he wrote to them in ways that, and was speaking to them in ways that are, uh, how would I put this? Not antagonistic, but certainly uh, Aggressive. Aggressive about what it means, what, what the central message of Christianity is. And sometimes that can be confusing to us. Whether that's because we grew up in a tradition that, that uh, wouldn't have said it the way he does. Maybe we're new to church and we're not really... We, it's kind of shaking some of our assumptions about what Christianity is about. Or maybe it's just like... Uh, I know I've read something somewhere that says something a little different. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break from Galatians. We're going to go to James because in James is the place where most people, if they're like, but Rick, this is where they go. Okay? So if you have your place in James 2, go ahead and stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. We're going to be reading verses 14 down through 26. This is good stuff. This is the word of God. It is for us hear it uh, as if maybe it is the first time or as if it were. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word given in love for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you work in our weakness, and I'm so thankful for that, for you come to us and you open our stubborn hearts. So I pray that you would do that this morning. Open mine. Open ours that we would be able to hear from you. Those places, Lord, where we right now are fighting against you, where we're arguing with you, we are are, uh, clinging to things when we know you're asking us to give them up. We know you're saying that this is for our good, and yet we just don't want to. Would you work? Would you work even this morning, in this time? Let everything that Jesus has done come to the forefront. and Everything else, including the one who's speaking, fall away, Lord. You hold the words of eternal life, so speak. Your servants are listening, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, I'm a pastor. Um, and as a pastor, you know, when you go out and you're hanging out in public and and go to a restaurant or something and you meet somebody and they're like, what do you do? And you say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm an engineer or I, you know, I work at Lockheed or whatever. And they're like, oh, that's great. Blah, blah, blah. When I go out and do that and they say, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh, (laughs) but sometimes we can, we can stay talking. Not all the time. Most of the time, frankly, we do. Um, it's one of the things I love to do, and, and as we're talking, oftentimes when, I, when I'm able to kind of get down and, and really engage with someone, normally it's not like in the first meeting. I'm not that guy, but it, over time, um, getting to know some people, one of the things I've heard often is well they'll say, well, Rick, you know what really bugs me is just that the Bible is just full of contradictions. I'm sure you've heard that. Maybe you've thought that, right? Maybe you're here and you're thinking that. And you're like, it's full of contradictions. And of course I go, yeah, okay. Uh, Well, maybe I can help with that. What are some? Well, I don't know. You know, that tends to be the thing because it's more of a cultural truism, right? It's more of a cultural truism, a, a conventional wisdom than personal experience. But that said, some of us, especially if you've taken a college Bible class, will bring up the issue of Paul and James. What it's called in in, uh, academic circles, at least of a couple generations ago, which is still being taught in our colleges. Um, Gentile Christianity and Jewish Christianity. Uh, Paul and Peter, you know, that kind of thing. Jerusalem and Athens. And normally when they do that, this is the passage they're talking about. Paul says you're justified by faith and not works of the law and here James is saying no 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 you see that a man is justified by works not by faith alone. So what are we to do with that? Clearly the Bible's contradicting itself right? I mean clearly. Clearly these two are arguing with each other. Clearly Paul's writing and James is writing in contradiction to him or or there's an argument going on in the early church Right? Clearly, Paul was lying when we heard a couple of weeks ago that Peter and James added nothing to what he had to say. Clearly, right? Clearly, Christianity isn't as free as I would have been having us think. Well, let's take a look and see if that's the, the case. There's an outline if you, if you like to take notes. If not, don't worry about it. But we're going to look at faith in word, faith made visible, and then faithful living, all right? So let's start um, by looking down at verses 14 to 17. In these empty words. Now, most of you here probably know, right? That I don't think Paul and James are contradicting themselves, right? So, you know, if not, spoiler alert, I I don't think that. But... (laughs) To see that, we need to be clear on what's being said and what isn't. But first, I want to talk about James. If you've been here the last few weeks, you already know who this guy is. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Joseph and Mary. He was born after Jesus. Obviously, uh, Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. And so that means James is the younger half-brother of the perfect son of God. Before Jesus died, James, along with the rest of his family, thought that Jesus was nuts you can see that in the Bible, he comes and they try and collect him, he's doing some ministry, and they're trying to collect him because they think, and it literally, we're the, the told this, they think he's crazy, he's off his rocker. Don't be so hard on James. You would think so too, right? If you're older, if you older half-brother, his goody two-shoes half-brother, he gets everything right, began walking around the world and, and the area that you live in, and the greater region that you live in, telling everyone that he's the long-awaited fulfillment of the promise of God to right the world, you'd be like, I don't know. Right? Like I've I've been with you, and you're good, but I don't I don't know about that. But then Jesus rises from the dead and he appears to James. And James went from calling Jesus crazy to calling him Lord. Not your stereotypical church leader. Okay? But let's get into this. Look down at verses 14 to 17. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Okay, stop there. We need to understand that this question is the foundation for everything that's going to come after in this passage, okay? A lot of times we forget that, and we read verses, and we forget that this is a letter. Someone is writing this, which means they're trying to make a point, point. and this question frames how we are supposed to read the rest of the passage. This is the question he's answering. He's answering the question, let's say Someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? In other words, James is setting up this hypothetical situation. And that whole hypothetical situation hinges on this word says, or you could translate it claims, okay? James isn't talking about a hypothetical situation of someone having faith and not having works, whatever those are but he's talking about the claim. Let's say someone claims that they are a follower of Jesus, but you don't see anything going with that. Does that make sense? We'll get to exactly what he means by faith here in a second, but for now, let's just see that James is giving us a situation in, in, in which someone says, yeah, 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 I follow Jesus. I have faith, but their lives are untouched by it. That's the situation we're talking about, okay? Now, from the get-go, from Jump Street, if you've been here, you know that's a little different than what Paul's been talking about, but let's just say maybe, maybe it's still contradictory. So then James gives an illustration, and the illustration is basically this. Let's say, friends, you know someone, and that someone doesn't have the basic things they need to live. They don't have food. They don't have warmth. And you go to them and you say, be warm, be fed. He's saying, do those words have any meaning to them? If you had the means to help them be warm and fed, did your words matter? You see what he's saying? You see what the, the ultimate, there's his, there's his illustration of the question that he's trying to get us to think through. What he's not saying is that if you, if you have faith, you'll care for the poor. Now, the Bible has tons to say about that. And I, I wouldn't say that the Bible is like saying that that's a non-issue. That's really, really there. Just not here. That's not what's going on here. Here he's trying to say, let's say you knew someone who was hungry and cold. And you have the means to do that. And you tell them, don't be cold. Don't be hungry. And you go about your merry way. Did your words have any matter to them? Did they matter at all? Obviously, you would say, well, no. James says, faith without life change, without works, is dead. In other words, it's just meaningless words. And he fleshes that out a little bit more in verses 18 to 19. Look there, James says, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Basically he says, oh yeah, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith out of my works. So we have to get this. The key word, and if you have a Bible, if, if you've got your Bible with you, I mean, if you want to mark up ours, that's fine. Just take it home with you. But if you have your Bible with you and you've got a pen or a pencil, I want you to underline all the times he says show or see or some variant thereof in this passage. Right, the key word there is Show. James' whole point here is, you say you have faith, show me. Show me you have faith. That's not very politically correct, is it? But it's still what it is. Show me. You say, okay, all right, all right, well, show me. And then he lays it bare in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well, friend. So do demons. Demons and they shudder by it. Now when he says you believe that God is one, you need to understand that that is the confession of faith of every Jewish person down from basically Moses on. It is it is what is called in Hebrew the Shema. The Lord your God, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? Jewish people would recite this over and over and over again. This would be no different than if you were to go into a more liturgical church and you were to say, you believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Good for you. So do demons. And they shudder at it. He says that confession means squat. His implication is you say you have faith, but you have no life change. You don't have faith. You have a knowledge of propositions. And you know who else has a knowledge of propositions? Demons. Demons have very good theology. Demons can tell you exactly what's up, he's saying. You got that? Awesome. Good for you. Uh, So do they. So let's, let's Maybe think a little bit more about this whole situation. So let me bring this into our context really quick, because I know this is so confusing, and we're in America today, right? And and it's starting to change, but in America for so long, especially in in um, more traditional communities, being Christian basically meant being American and not being a Muslim, right? It's like I'm an American, of course I'm a Christian. Being a Christian is not believing in God. That's not what being a Christian means. Christian faith isn't even believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Christian faith is not being able to agree, listen to me, not being able to agree that you're not perfect, that uh, maybe even being willing to assent that Jesus is God's only answer to our sin. You with me? Christian faith is not less than those things, but it is not those things. You can know a lot about Jesus and not have faith in him. You can know a lot about the Bible and not have faith in Jesus. I've met a lot of people who know way more about the Bible than I do and have no faith in Jesus. Christian faith is also not church membership, it's not having been baptized, it's not being able to recite John 3.16, and it's not trying to be moral. Can it include all those things? Yes, it can. Absolutely. But it's not simply words, because if that were the case, what that would show is that your problem, and my problem, and humanity's problem, is simply that we just have the wrong beliefs. And if we can get our beliefs right, everything will be better for us. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that your problem, that my problem, that our problem is that we just need a better set of propositions. It's not that at all. And so let me be clear. What James is dealing with in this passage is not speculation on how you can get right with God. He's dealing with those who think they are okay with God because they hold to some propositions. Maybe they even attend a church But their lives still reflect independence from God. Their lives still reflect looking out for number one. They still reflect using people and using God to protect, to provide, to do things for themselves. It still looks like someone who is seeking out a status apart from God or safety apart from him or satisfaction. They haven't returned to dependence on God through Jesus Jesus to them is like a get out out of hell free card. He's fire insurance. He's not a Lord to follow. He's not a savior to love. And James says, if that's your faith, that faith is useless. Useless. I I know some of you, I'm stepping on your toes. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. It's James, right? It's James. I'm just telling you what the book says. I'm just telling you what the book says, okay? But that brings us to a faith made visible. So maybe there's a way out. Let's look. James gives us two examples of what true faith looks like. Both of these are from the Old Testament. He gives us the story of Abraham, and he gives us the story of Rahab. I love these, okay? To get to Abe, we need to continue the story of the Bible. See, right at the beginning, when we lost it all, when we just messed it all up, we betrayed God, we turned away from him, God kind of, he promised he was going to make things right, he was going to make things better, and so he picked this guy, Later on, this guy named Abraham, or Abram at the time, who was um, worshiping false gods, and he said, you're going to be on my team now, and I'm going to answer my promise through your family, which if you're familiar with the story, you know the problem, right? He's 90, he's got no kids, but God's God, he doesn't care about age much. So uh, he and his wife, um, his 91-year-old wife, have this baby named Isaac. And then in Genesis 22, Genesis chapter 22, you can go back and read this. Genesis chapter 22, this crazy thing happens where God says to Abraham, You know what I need you to do? I need you to walk up on the mountain with your son, and I need you to sacrifice him for me. Well, that's different. Doesn't seem very godlike, uh, certainly not to Abraham, certainly not to us. And so Abraham begins to go through with it yeah he he begins to go through with it he waits 100 years to have a kid finally gets one God says kill him and he's like okay sure why not okay well we'll get to why in a second okay so don't hold, uh, hold on but then there's Rahab he talks about Rahab in verse 25 Rahab is a prostitute She's a prostitute in the city, in a city called Jericho. So when God's people come out of Egypt, so we are way past Abraham now. We're, we're Abraham, we're back, we're into the time of Moses. So like Moses brings the uh, Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They're marching into the promised land and um, there's this big city in the way. The city's named Jericho, big walls, really tough. Um, lots of jokes about it, but I won't make them, okay? So there's lots of, it's a giant city. And so God's people send spies into the land, and they find their way into Rahab's house. Now, I'm sure there's a perfectly good explanation for why the spies ended up in a brothel. (laughs) I can think of a couple. They're not perfectly good. I'm sure they tried to give a perfectly good explanation. Let Let me say that. But this is one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible isn't trying to clean up our mess. It's honest about our mess. They're in a brothel. Anyway, so the cops find out that spies are there and they come over to and and Rahab hides them because she suddenly believes that the God that they worship is the one true God of all the universe and that God's going to conquer this city. She risks death by hiding these two dudes when she easily could have said, I still believe all that, but I got to take care of me, Right? Why would anyone do either of these two things? Well, the answer is actually right there in the passage in verse 23. James says the scripture was fulfilled that said he, that's Abraham, we're back to Abraham, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, stay with me for a minute because this can be confusing. If you're reading this passage, the implication that you get, kind of the picture you get in your head, is that God told Abraham to go sacrifice his kid. He goes up on the mountain and because he went and did that, he was justified right? Made right with God. That's what the word justified means. That's the way it would read here, but Abraham going up on the mountain is from chapter 22 in Genesis. That whole phrase, he believed God and God credited him as righteousness, that's from chapter 15. That's way before this. So what's what's James trying to get across? Well, in, in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that he is going to be the answer to God's promise to deal with sin. And Abraham believes him. He puts all his eggs in that basket. He has faith. And that is what Paul is talking about in Galatians, and that is the kind of true faith that's opposed to what James is railing against. Abraham had the promise of God, okay? He had the promise of God. He laid his faith in that promise and returned to dependence on God. And we have the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the promise. He lived the way we couldn't. He died the way we wouldn't want to. And he rose again so that when we place our faith in him, just like Abraham, God credits us with righteousness. In other words, our sin is credited to Jesus. We're credited with his perfect life. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. In other words, it's not just about believing in a certain set of propositions. It's about trust in a person, not propositions. Propositions are important, but it's the problem is not your propositions. The problem is a broken relationship. We have to return to dependence on a person. It's being reconciled to God. Returning to the dependence we were made for, which means it is a faith that should be visible. Faith is not just an inner disposition it's a whole life dependence it's not just an inner disposition it's a whole life dependence okay so that leads us to seeing faith look down at verses 22 and 24 or through 24 listen uh when you and I talk um we use a phrase often we use a phrase you see right I'm not entirely sure how you spell you see I think it's Y A S E E. I think it's one word. You see, that's the way I do it, at least. It's, well, and and what that phrase means it is the conclusion to what we're saying. In other words, what we're not saying is, do you see? We're saying you understand. So now you understand, and then we move into this. See becomes a metaphor for understanding. James had no such colloquialism. Okay. Now let's read this passage a little differently. Because James, we think James is making concluding statements, but he's not. He's saying you can literally see with your eyes that someone is right with God because of what they do. Do their actions make them right with God? No. Did Abram's actions make him right with God? No. Abraham was right with God in Genesis 15. And he did this other thing in Genesis 22, 15 years later. 15 years later. The point is that you could literally see Abram's faith in the promise of God, in the fact of what he was going to do. If you did not believe that God actually was going to answer his promise to save the world through you and through your kids, and you had one kid and you really loved that kid, there is no way you're going up the mountain with the knife. No way. The book of Hebrews literally tells us that's later in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews literally tells us Abram believed that God was going to raise him from the dead. Why? Because he promised he was going to do this through Isaac. And he doesn't break his promise. So he's asking me to sacrifice. I mean, obviously he has something more to this. He doesn't break his promises. because he promised to fulfill all of his, all of, all of his, his ultimate covenant to save the world through Abram and through Isaac, Abraham said, there's no way, there's no way that he's going to make this end in death. And listen to me. Faith in Jesus is the same. It's the same. If you believe that nothing commended you before God, that you deserve nothing from him except judgment. If you believe that there was nothing you could offer God, there's no, I got nothing, even like what Paul will say in, some, in another place, even what I have and I can offer him, look at my pretty filthy rags. Like that's what Paul calls it, the filthy rags before. Like if you think you have nothing and that God still came and took that judgment for you, died in your place, purely out of grace, like nothing to merit it, then you're going to follow him. If you believe that in Christ, God has given you everything, truly given you everything, then there is nothing that anything else can give you. It gives shape to your life. And that's why James says in verse 22, you see his faith Working with his works. And through his works, his faith is, the ESV says, completed. A better word is, it comes to maturity. You see his faith matured by the fact that he is willing to live it out. Okay? If you checked out, check back in real quick. This is important. Being reconciled to God through Jesus does not just mean being saved from something. It means that. It does not mean anything less than that. You are saved by Jesus from sin, death, and hell. But you are also saved for a new life. For a different way of being. For being what, what, we, what would be called throughout the scriptures in a, in a way that theologians call it more um, fully human. You are saved for a life that's turned outward towards God and others instead of inward towards yourself. You're not simply saved from something, you're saved for something. And as we do that, as our works come out of our faith, our faith is matured. There's this um, guy in the 16th century, we think, if if you're new to... to, Reformed Church or Presbyterian Church, we think he's kind of a big deal. His name was Martin Luther. Um, he was a Protestant reformer. The one of the ways that he put it was this: that he said, "Now you're saved through faith alone. Right? You've heard me say that. You're saved through faith alone. But the faith through which you are saved is never alone. You're saved through faith alone. Yes, that is the instrument through which, through which God's." Being right with him comes. Faith in Jesus, you're united to Christ. You've heard me say that. If you haven't, go back and listen to him. That's that's it. But the faith through which you're saved never comes by itself. It never comes by itself. Faith is not an inner disposition. It's a whole life dependence. And so what this means is, friends, let me be, especially if you've been a churched person for a long time. Maybe you're a church kid and you grew up in church and now you're here. I need you to listen very, very close. If your life isn't being oriented in this way, if you've got lots of words and you've got all the right answers and all the gold stars on the Sunday school chart, you've done it. You've got it, right? You've done the thing. But there's not much else with it. James is saying maybe you should question where your faith is. This isn't faith versus works as alternative pathways to God. That's not what this is. This isn't, well, some of you go the faith way and some of us, we just work really hard. You go the faith way because you're not as good as we are and we do the works thing. That is not what he's saying. It is empty faith, nominal faith, not really faith versus faith that is lived out through the life of a believer. Because James would say that is the only kind of faith there is. Let's bring this home real quick, okay? Um, let's see it how how it should be impacting our lives. Let's turn to faithful living. Now, I know if you're if you're outlining and you've got the outline out, I know what the first bullet point says, but I'm changing it, changing it, going off script. All right, here we go. We're gonna we're gonna talk about directional faith instead. This is so important. This is so important because especially in Western culture, I've said it a couple times, but I need to say it again. We think everything that is most important in our lives happens internally, don't we? Love. What is love? Oh, it's this feeling I get. It's this feeling. If you've been married over 20 years, you know that that is duh, right? You know that, come on, man. I mean, it is that, and when it's that, it's pretty awesome. We think that loyalty and and all these things, they're all just kind of inner dispositions, and when the inner disposition changes, our reality changes with it, right? That's what we think. My inner disposition determines everything. So words that we throw around all the time in the church, repentance, faith, all these things, aren't they just inner dispositions? No. No. Faith has a direction. Faith has a direction. This is incredibly important so l- let me define some churchy words real quick there's a one word that we throw around a lot in the church it's the word it's, it's a, our words repentance repentance my guess is is that the vast majority of us even in this room are very confused on what that word means and I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life or this is your first time repentance is not confession confession is confession has its own word doesn't need another one Confession is confession. Agreeing that something was wrong that you did is not repentance. Again, that's confession. Telling someone that you did something wrong, not repentance. Might be part of it, but it's not repentance. Repentance is literally, if this is the direction of the thing that you're struggling with, we'll just go ahead and use the S word, if this is the direction of your sin, repentance is turning away from that and walking back towards Jesus. You cannot have repentance without faith, and you cannot have faith without repentance. If you're turning towards Jesus, you're turning away from something else. And if you're turning away from that thing, the only place that you can turn to to not make it just changing the problem is going towards Jesus. You with me? That is repentance. That is what repentance is. If someone comes to you, and if you've done this, i Listen, we're all in the same boat, okay? Because, listen, I get this wrong too. We all get this wrong. If someone comes to you and they say, well, you know, I used to do X, Y, or Z, but I've repented of that. Your first question should probably be, really? It's done? Like, no more thoughts in that direction? No more temptations? Even the underlying motivations? You don't even have those anymore? Really? See, again, that guy we just talked about, Martin Luther, he did this really big thing. Uh, most, most historians, and I don't think it's completely fair, and those of you who are theology people, you know that this isn't entirely accurate, but a lot of people will say that he began the Protestant Reformation by nailing a, a certain set of arguments, 95 of them, on the door of this church in Wittenberg. And the first of those, you know what the first of them was? It was the assertion that all of life is repentance. Not a one-time gig. It's not something you did that one time. That all of life is repentance. Repentance is a path towards faith. To repent of your gossip is not simply to stop gossiping. It's to start going to Jesus for what you were hoping gossip would get you which more often than not is just the upper hand or making yourself look good as opposed to others, right? But none of us gossip, so we're not going to worry about that one. Let's try another one. To repent of looking at pornography is not simply to stop looking at pornography. It is that, it can't be less than that, but it is to move towards relational intimacy with, if you're married, your spouse. If you're not, your friends. And if you are married, also your friends. It's to move in relational intimacy because that is the dirty little secret of this whole thing. That's what you were looking for in the first place. It's not enough just to say no. Repentance is more than that. This is what faith looks like. Is it easy? No. Is it natural? <laughs> no. Does it take prayer and persistence in the help of others? Yes, it does. And I know some of us who've been here over the last few weeks have been thinking, you know, new guy doesn't get. It. Doesn't get it. He doesn't think God cares what we do. No, 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 no. Of course, God cares what we do, He loves us. Parents. Do your kids behave so that they can be your kid? No. Do you give them rules so that they can earn their spot at the dinner table? If so, they ain't eating. It's all right, kids. I was there too. No. No. We set up rules and boundaries, not because we need to be shown to be right. If that's the case, I have a great name of a counselor. But if, that, if that's, that's not normally the case, we set up our rules around them because we know this is what is going to help my child flourish. Parents care about what their kids do, but not because they need their kids to make them feel better about themselves. And parents, I know we do like our kids to help us feel better about ourselves. That's what we need to take to Jesus, all right? God loves us and he made us for flourishing, not the other things we do. But those things, those ways in which he tells us we're going to flourish, don't make us right with him. They are the result of being right with him. Okay? Now let me give us two ways. and I know I'm going a little long. This will be quick, I promise. If you're like, okay, Rick, well, what does it look like to live out my faith today? Let me give you two ways that would be radical in our culture. Radical. Radical. Radical ways that someone goes. Something's not right with that guy. That's weird. The first one, radical generosity. Listen to me. For most of us in this room, Christian or not, I don't really. This, this is this is a free for all on this one. We have a functional savior, and it is not Jesus. It is Benjamin Franklin. Right? What do you think is going to make you happy in life? What do you think is going to make life worth living? What is it that keeps you safe? What is it that when, when, when that market hits and your retirement starts doing this, what's going on in here? What's happening? Is it just like, oh, no big deal. God will take care of me. My faith's not my stuff. My faith's in Jesus. No, it's like, please make it stop. What do you think makes you somebody? I can get a table at, I don't know, name it. I don't know the nice restaurants because I can't get a table there. But, you know, like, I can get a table at, you know, where? Okay, does that make you somebody? What is it that makes you right? What is it that makes you worth it? For most of us, it is somehow wrapped up in that bank statement. But faith in Christ should radically change the way we view our money. Because it's, it tells us it's not ours anyway. That everything we have is grace from God. And if Jesus is Lord of all, he's Lord over our money as well. We see that, that that thing that we want it to give us, that status, that safety, that satisfaction, it can't because we weren't made for it. We're made for him. He's the only one who can give us those things. And we know our heart's tendency to return to the idol of money, and so we actively, here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road, we actively give it away to push against that. How do, we show the, how do we show ourselves money can't save me? We give it away. We just give it away. The middle class dream cannot fill you. If you believe that Jesus does fill you, then it both frees you to and compels you to Live like that through generosity. First in the giving that God requires to his purposes through the church, we call that the tithe, and then just everyday generosity to other causes and other people. Radical generosity. You don't see that in many. And if you do it freely and joyfully, there's something different, man. There's just something different. There's something motivating that person. It's not just look how good I am. Lastly, let me do the last one. Radical chastity. All right, now, that's an old-fashioned word. And oftentimes, we think that that means uh, refraining from sex. It doesn't mean that, okay? God invented sex. He thinks it's pretty awesome. So do I, all right? It's pretty awesome. Chastity is not abstention. Abstaining is abstaining. Chastity is is keeping sexuality... Inside, marriage, as God defines it, between a man and a woman. It means staying away from, abstaining from sex outside of that one context. Now, some of you are like, of course, he's railing on sex. It's my first time in church. I knew it was going to happen. It was either money or sex, and it was both this week. (laughs) Just hear me out. Western culture, and especially American culture, is convinced That sexuality is the core of who we are, right? It constitutes our very identity. And refusing to express it, if we refuse to express our sexuality, in whatever way our sexuality would push us to go, it is is part and parcel to denying our very humanity. It's seen as self-abusive, is it not? That is completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ reorients us by showing us that our identity is not something in us, it's something given to us by Jesus. And it's completely secured for us in Him, that we cannot be reductionistically defined by our sexuality. gospel exposes the fact that the very things that we're looking for in sex couldn't be attained through it. There's no, there's, it's never enough. It's never enough. That those things can only be attained through reconciliation with God. It frees us from our bondage to our own selfishness and our drive for self-gratification. And instead, it turns us outwards towards God and towards others instead of wanting to use others We want to bless them. And lastly, it shows us that we were made to enjoy the delights of unfettered intimacy with with another within a promise-bound, safe relationship, just like the one we have with God through Jesus. Our faith has to be seen, friends. It has to be seen. It's more than words. Not that song, but more than words. I like to call it showing Jesus. As we grow in knowing Jesus, others should be able to see him in our lives. And we do this not because, not because we're trying to get something from God. <laughs> There's nothing left to get. We're not doing it so that he'll like us. We do it because we've received everything from God. And because in Jesus he's loved us. Do you pray with me? May it be, Lord, may it be. Rescue us from ourselves. For those of us here who are struggling because, um, man, our faith has been a lot of words, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. For those of us who have been just confused and thought, and, and we're just constantly on the treadmill, we have faith. But man, we're constantly on that treadmill thinking that if I don't do X, Y, or Z, God's just not going to love me as much. I pray that you would set them free. Set them free. You have given us everything in Jesus and there is nothing that anything else can give us. And Lord, may UPC be a place where our faith is directional, where it's seen and recognized. Not because we're arrogant or trying to get something from people or showing everybody how good we are, but because we're, we love the one who has rescued us so much that we can't but do the crazy things that he calls us to do. And we ask that you do all this in Christ's name.